On this episode of Inside the Lens, I have a revealing discussion with Haya Comps, the man behind Trigger Trap. Trigger Trap recently announced that it was shutting down, so our conversation covers the entire saga of Kickstarter successes and failures, engineering challenges, and what the future holds for users of Trigger Trap products. It's a deep dive into technical photographic challenges, which is what Inside the Lens is all about. Enjoy. Welcome to another great episode of Inside the Lens. This is a little bit different than the previous episodes in uh, in this podcast. For one important reason, we are getting inside the mind of a person and not inside the technology and the science uh, that goes along with a lot of our photography. This particular person uh, I, I'm very excited to have here, uh, Haya Comps, uh, who he, he's the, the, the brain behind Trigger Trap. Uh, how you doing, Haya? I'm pretty well. How are you doing? I'm doing very good. Uh, and this is, this is kind of a, an interesting topic because, uh, to, to give a brief synopsis about why you're here, uh, is Trigger Trap, which was a wonderful product. Um, it, it existed before a Kickstarter campaign that I supported and I've used for years, uh, has closed its doors. And, yep. uh, so it, it's very interesting to see a company start and have a lot of momentum and there's been some stumbling uh, along the way and eventually it was just not profitable anymore. But the adventure that you've gone on along the, uh, along the way, I think is going to be really interesting to, uh, to our listeners, specifically uh, a lot of the... I, I don't want to say like failures, but let's say mistakes, because if you learn from it, then it's not a failure. Uh, and how everything got started. So why don't we just go right back to the beginning? And uh, where did Trigger Trap, the original idea, come from? Yeah, sure. So um, I was for a time working in television and um, discovered that I absolutely hated my job. Uh, and uh, around the same time, I was running a, a photography blog called Photocritic. Um, which at the time was pretty successful, um, and that kind of went by the wayside by lots of really weird little things. But as part of that, I got a couple of book deals. So I was writing books about photography. Um, as per last count, I think I've done about 12, uh, about all sorts of different things. And at the time, I was working on one that was like a DIY photography book. Uh, the idea being, um, can I build a camera completely from scratch um, and see if I can actually make it take photos? Um which is, of course, a ridiculous idea because I'm not actually that technical and building a camera is really, really hard. Um, but one of the things I was building, uh, one of the things I was working on was to kind of create a triggering mechanism. And this triggering mechanism, part of it was like, well, actually, there's no reason why this should just be a button. You know, there's so many different things that you could trigger based on, you know. We're so used to being photographers, you hold a thing in your hand, you press a button to take a photo. But from an electronics point of view, it's just closing a circuit. So what I was thinking is, well, there's lots of other ways of, of doing that. For example, you could do hands-free photography by clapping your hands. It recognizes the sound of a clap and it takes a photo. Or, you know, there's a laser beam across the room and you break the laser beam and it takes a photo and all that kind of stuff. And I got really fascinated with that because it felt to me like a really kind of underappreciated part of photography. We always think of photographers as being the guys who, who run around with heavy lenses and holding the camera. But the insight I had is that, wait a minute, there's a whole different genre of photography that doesn't have to be that way. And so I started playing with uh, an Arduino kit and um, 
I was building little electronic uh, prototypes and stuff and built a laser trigger really early on and then built a sound trigger and then built various time-lapse uh, devices and stuff. Some of the very early stuff I built um, eventually turned up in Trigger Trap products and some of it I still have never seen out there in the market. And I'm like, cool, well, maybe there is something here. And so at one point, I I think around the same time, actually, I discovered Kickstarter. Um, the original Pebble Watch was happening. Uh, there was a lot of really interesting things happening on Kickstarter. And I wanted to do a Kickstarter project. I knew this that. Was, like, this was 2011, 2012? 2010-ish, I guess, was when I was doing all this thinking. Um, and I really wanted to do a Kickstarter project of some sort. So I kind of started looking around my room, my office, seeing, okay, what do I have here? And uh, my original idea was to build a photography school, which, long story short, I ended up doing much, much later. Um, and I put together a Kickstarter project and said, okay, I want to teach photography to as many people as possible for free. Um, how can we do this? Can somebody, you know, do you guys want to back this project? And at the time, Kickstarter was still kind of vetting projects. And they were like, well, if you want to build a photography school, build a photography school. Don't involve us in that. I was like, well, that's nice. <laughs> um and what ended up happening is that I just kind of um, uh, kind of was a little bit dejected. I was like, well, I've written loads of books about photography. I should totally be able to build a photography school. What's going on here? And my eyes kind of fell down on this giant bundle of cables on my desk, which was my Arduino project, uh, which I at the time called something very exciting like camera trigger. Um, <laughs> and I thought, you know what? This could totally be a product. And so I started uh, talking to a couple of real ele electronical engineers to find out how I would do this and you know what it would take to bring this to market. Um, and that's really how it all started. I just I wanted to do a Kickstarter project. I happened to have a pile of cables in front of me, and I kind of just banged the two together, and that was to start. So the, the Kickstarter project um, coming along, and I've got the original Kickstarter trigger trap sort of in my hands. Of course, it's an nice. audio podcast, so people can't see it. But um, this was this was a magic little device. I mean, it was it was simple. So all it is for people curious about this um, is it has a um, uh, what amounts to a um, uh, an audio jack on one side and an audio jack on the other that you then adapt uh, to to various different bits and pieces. So um, the audio jack on one end plugs into your phone. And that's the control mechanism. And then the other one, which is a smaller jack, is then adapted to whatever camera trigger you happen to have uh, or camera uh, trigger port. So, you know, I've got and a I Canon can camera from, so you get the adapter I can see from the video feed there that you're a Canon guy. I am, yeah. Which is embarrassing how I recognize every single camera based on their remote ports now. <laughs> oh, I know. It's so funny. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm a Canon guy. And so I, I, I had this gear. Now, even when I got it, I'm thinking, okay, well, what is the secret? between the phone and the camera what is in this little black box that made it function well i know that you opened it because in preparation for this uh <laughs> in preparation for this i actually did a search for your name in our uh, customer support emails and stuff and i found a photo of uh, a failed one that you sent to us at some point and that was pretty funny um we had a lot of problems early on the first ten thousand we built or so only about half of them worked um which is a uh, testament to, you know, trying to do Chinese manufacturing when you don't really know what you're doing. It's incredibly difficult. Um, I now do a lot of advising start, uh, startups, and whenever somebody mentions hardware, I take a deep breath and go, right, do you know what you're getting yourself into? Because hardware is insanely hard. I'm happy to get into more of that later. But basically, the magic that happens in the box is very, very simple. The phone outputs an audio signal. So... 
uh, in theory, you could actually trigger your phone use playing an MP3 sound, um, and it's using a hypersonic sound. So what that means is really, really high pitch. So in theory, if you plug in a set of headphones, you shouldn't be able to hear it uh, unless you're like 12 years old and you have really good hearing. Um, but yeah, so that actually sends that audio signal into the little box. Uh, the little box takes that audio signal and turns it into electricity. So it basically takes that sine wave that the, the phone is outputting and turns it into a switch. So the, that means that the actual um, phone side of things and the actual camera side of things are completely decoupled from each other, uh, which is important because some people plug this thing into flashes, which, as you can imagine, a flash sometimes dumps about 400 volts down its uh, connection ports, which phones are not a big fan of. You know, the phone expects the thing to be plugged in to be a headphones, which doesn't really have any power in it. If you suddenly throw 400 volts down... Uh, through a cable, that's not going to end well for your phone. Um, we tested it as, this, actually. We weren't able to blow up any phones, so it seems that Apple does have some really good protections in there. I'm glad um, you tested it. Right. Well, we, you know, I didn't want to get sued. Um, but then we also decided to be smart about it and then build a circuit that uh, eliminated, eliminated the possibility of blowing up people's phones. Uh, but yeah, so that's basically it. So if you think about a, a normal remote control that you stick into the side of your camera is really just a switch. So you, you press the button, it actually makes a connection and the camera triggers. You let go of the button, it ends the connection and the camera stops triggering. So that's basically the same thing as what this box does, except instead of pressing a button, it takes a audio signal, which then gets translated into a switch, which triggers the camera. So it's it's very simple technology overall, but uh, even simple technology. I mean, I would as... hesitate to even call it technology at this point. <laughs> well, okay, uh, but, but, but it even works still, really I mean, well. The... There is a circuit board in here and there's, you know, devices or, or components that are soldered together in some way. It is very, very simple technology. Yeah. And you'd mentioned uh, the one that I had that broke. My wife and I were uh, were in Bulgaria and I was going to set up. Uh, that, that's where she's originally from. We go back every year or so and just visit family. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be fun to just do a time lapse, you know, looking over the Black Sea and, and have a lot of fun and my trigger trap didn't function. Um, so, of course, if it's broken, taking it apart is well it's already broken right so let's yeah. just figure out what the problem is and it was um one of the uh the headphone jack the one that's built into the little box had become unseated from the circuit board now yeah. an enterprising person with a, a bit of solder can fix that but that's not your client right you, you didn't bring you, a soldering iron with you on holiday what's wrong with you <laughs> <laughs> no, but there was a hardware store around the around the corner, and I could have fixed it. Um, but yeah. the uh, it it was a simple point of failure, and yeah. uh, and to to go to the idea of manufacturing problems. I mean, you're trying to make these things as inexpensively as possible, uh, and have every one of them exactly identical to the next. Yep. such that they all work properly. Um, and you said that you've had some issues with that. But w before we get into that, because I know that that will lead us into another part of the discussion um, about a, uh, a follow-up product, um, and we can maybe wrap that up together. But the initial Kickstarter campaign, people wanted this, right? I mean, it was yeah. like a huge success. Uh, did you expect it to be as popular uh, as it was? So... I think the best way to answer that is that I, on several times, nearly cancelled the project. Um, I nearly cancelled it before I even launched it. Um, I initially had the goal set at 10,000, and I spoke to a good friend of mine who is a very good editor uh, of one of the big photography blogs and also creates his own products. And he said, what the hell are you doing? You're charging way too little, and the, the limit is way too low. And in retrospect, he was completely correct. Um, I've completely derailed myself now. 
Sorry, we're talking what, about what the, the, uh, the the values and the interest that people had in the oh, uh, yes. in the Kickstarter campaign, and and I know you blew past your original funding goals. Um, yes, and a lot of times when that happens, it puts pressure, a lot of um, unexpected pressure, because then now you have to produce a product in higher volume than you've ever expected, uh, yeah. and everything just becomes an entirely new game. It's not just something that can be mass or, or, or uh, sorry, not mass produced, but produced on a small scale for the uh, the people, you've got to ramp things up and you have to have the entire chain of support, the, the communication to the Chinese manufacturer, making sure that everything is going fine there, the yeah. shipment schedules uh, and getting um, engineering samples. I'm not sure if, how you went through this whole process to make sure that what you were getting was what you expected. Uh, it, it, be, it would become a... Let's say you had a thousand orders, yeah. then that that's one thing, and that's handleable by one person. But what if it's ten thousand orders? You know, it, yeah. it does not scale in the same way. And the thing is, people are very people are very blasé about numbers, right? You go, oh, a thousand—that doesn't sound like a lot. You know, Apple sells millions of stuff. Um, but the way to think about it is, uh, think about just a sheet of paper, right? That you put in your printer. One of those is a very simple device. It is, it, it, it is exacting standards. It has the size you expect. It's the thickness you expect, that kind of stuff. If you take 3,000 of them um, and stack them in a big pile, so the normal packs of printer paper you buy is 500. So to get to 3,000, you need six of those. You can barely lift that. And that is pieces of paper. You know, that is really, really simple. People understand paper. It's not that complicated. Well, we ordered 3,000 of the first version of Trigger Trap. Well, that wasn't 3,000 pieces of paper. That was 3,000 uh, devices that had components from eight different uh, suppliers. It had 180 different components in it. Uh, and, you know, not all of them turned out to be exactly the components we had ordered. Um and, you know, they go in packaging and the packaging has each individual piece of, piece of each packaging has a part number. You know, you have the sleeve that goes inside. That's a part number. You have the, the foam that protects it. That's a part number. You have the little plastic bag that go, goes around it. That's a part number. And by the end of the, by the end of it, by the time you have your bill of materials, you look at that and you go, what have I gotten myself into? Because it is so insanely complicated. Even if you take something really simple, like imagine you order a water bottle from a shop uh, the water bottle will have a dizzying number of part numbers because, you know, there's paint on it. There is printing on it. There is a, the water bottle itself. There's the packaging. There's the lid. There's the old, there's, there's the probably the a little package of desiccant inside of it. You know, there's right? so many things that you wouldn't otherwise consider. Uh, and as a consumer, you never think about that. And so it is absolutely incredible how much goes into just, just manufacturing something simple. And the first version of Trigger Trap wasn't something simple. It was, so there are actually two different products here. The little black box you held up was our Trigger Trap mobile solution, which works with an app. Uh, and the other one that I'm talking about now, which was the original Kickstarter project, was a Arduino-based high-speed trigger. Um, so obviously the mobile version was a direct response to us realizing how complicated the hardware was on the Arduino-based version. Because it turns out the mobile version you know, it's still, I mean, the, late, the latest version or so still has about 40 components, um, uh, about 45 components, actually, by the time you have packaging and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that was a reasonably complicated product. But, you know, it, the, the other one is orders of magnitude bigger. So at the time, we were thinking, hey, we already get that mobile apps are pretty good at this kind of stuff. Wouldn't it make an awful lot more sense to make an app 
that does all the smart stuff. Because it turns out, of course, building a Arduino-based product, a lot of the coding you do is is really ridiculously low-level. We are taking a break in the recording here because Haya has a train going by him right now, disrupting the audio. But this is a great time to thank the sponsor of this episode, Outdoor Photography Canada magazine. We consume photography knowledge in many ways. I mean, you're listening to this podcast, for example. And Outdoor Photography Canada delivers excellent photographic tutorials, gear reviews, and meaningful dialogue with some of Canada's top photographers. I'm honored to write for them with my Pushing Limits column in each issue. Uh, And I want you to check it out with a special offer for Inside the Lens listeners. For anyone in Canada or the United States, you can get 20% off a one-year subscription by using the code ITL on checkout. Uh, If you enjoy this podcast and the content that we bring to the table, you'll love a quarterly subscription to Outdoor Photography Canada on your table as well. Just go to opcmag.com and use the code ITL on a one-year subscription. We thank Outdoor Photography Canada magazine for supporting this podcast and making this episode possible. So show some support to them and receive a fantastic publication in the process. So these products have ridiculous uh, complexity and we just thought there must be an easier way of doing that. And we were looking at uh, mobile apps and thought, well, mobile apps are also complicated, but pushing updates is much easier. So as long as we have controllable hardware, where the the part from the phone to our uh, Trigger Trap mobile dongle and the cable from the mobile dongle to the camera are controllable, so we know that those are solid, then we can actually do a lot more in software, uh, but also have much better quality control over the whole process. Um, And it turned out that that was correct. I mean, that was a much more elegant way of launching these kind of products. Now, a few years down the line, we discovered, so we're now on our fourth version of the Trigger Trap mobile dongle, um, so we've had lots of little upgrades through, through the years. The first version essentially just didn't work. Uh, we should have never launched that. Um, but we, we only manufactured a, a limited number of those. So that's good. Um, and then, you know, the second version was much better functionally and, you know, didn't have the problems of getting desoldered and that kind of stuff. I mean, curious, I haven't used it in a while. If I use the trigger trap app, would this still work? Yep. Cool. I mean, at the heart of it, nothing has changed. Um, the new versions are much faster uh, by almost three times faster. So um, what is happening with the one you were holding there, which is the original one, uh, it would have to build up enough power in a capacitor to actually trigger, which took a lot of power. And that actually took a measurable amount of time. Now, when I say a long time, I don't mean minutes. I mean fractions of a second. But in photography world, of course, um, for real high-speed photography, we're talking milliseconds, if not microseconds. Um to the point that, you know, in most uh, photography applications, the camera shutter lag, which on fast cameras is about 30 milliseconds or so, it's imperceivable, right? When you press the button, it feels instantaneous, but you can measure it. When we, we had a whole testing rig that measured uh, the shutter delays on lots of different cameras, um, and it turns out that 30 milliseconds is about as fast as cameras get. And it doesn't matter whether it has mirrors or whether it's mirrorless or whatever, it's about 30 uh, milliseconds. Yeah, so I know I'm, on my on my one DX, I've got an option in the in the menus that allows me to um, unstabilize that setting so that I can let it go as fast as it could possibly go, which sometimes might be twenty milliseconds or, mm-hmm. or of that nature. But it will it won't be a stable value anymore yeah. because it all depends on uh, what lens is attached, like what aperture you have set, and and what have yeah. you. Um, well, and actually, what it what it will realistically depend on is. Because the, the 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 processor in your comp- in the in, 
in the camera will run on a little loop, right? So it goes, has anybody pressed a button? No. Has anybody pressed a button now? No. Has anybody pressed a button? And so eventually somebody has pressed a button, but depending on where in that loop you pressed a button, that actually affects how long it takes. Anyway, so the, the oldest version of Trigger Trap Mobile would have about 40, 50 milliseconds worth of delay, which doubles essentially your um, uh, camera lag. On the very uh, most recent versions, on our test rig, we have it down to about two milliseconds. So at that point, it's kind of, it doesn't really matter how long we take. Your camera is slower than the, than the Trigger Trap Mobile. Right. But of course, when you're triggering flashes, which is what people are doing when you're shooting really high-speed photography, so what you're doing then is that you darken the room completely, you open up the shutter with a long exposure, and then you actually freeze the motion by having a flash, um, which is how people do high-speed photography. At that point, those two milliseconds are an eternity again. So we started this whole new thing of, of trying to get it down to microseconds. And that's kind of where the second Kickstarter project came in. Um, because we discovered, okay, we've done a lot of really interesting stuff with using a mobile phone to trigger cameras. Uh, what happens when we start hitting the, the edges of that? When, when people want more speed or much better battery life or, you know, other so, functionality that we're yeah, able to well, offer. Let, let's talk for a minute about what people were using Trigger Trap for during all of this. I mean, the app had a lot of different options to it. I know personally, um, I used it as a device, as, a, as an intervalometer, a fairly simple use of it, um, yeah. when I was shooting some time-lapse footage for a BBC Science documentary. Uh, yeah. I just, I mean, I, I had an old phone, so I just plugged the old phone into it, and I left it outside in the freezing cold because the camera was uh, recording frost growing. Uh, <laughs> and if my phone happened to to die in any particular way, well, then that was the cost of getting the shot. And I got it, and they used it, and it was wonderful. But um, what are other interesting success stories that you remember of seeing people taking your design uh, and your your brainchild and and turning it into art? So we actually discovered very early on that. Um I mean, I'm a halfway competent photographer, but there are so many people out there who are doing incredible things, right? Um, if you're out there in the photography world, you'll very frequently see people do stuff that just makes you go, wow, there's never in my life that I could do that. Um, what, what that means is that you have a lot of people who are extreme specialists, right? There are people who can take pictures of frost growing better than anybody else in the world, um, which is a weird thing, but it happens to be one of those things where People just specialize. And so when we put the product out there, we actually got a lot of feedback very early on from people who are using this in ways we could never have imagined. For example, we have a distance lapse mode, which is it uses the GPS and then based on distance, it takes photos. I, I could imagine before you continue, if yep. you are in an aircraft and you are trying to take images uh, for the uh, topography of whatever is underneath you, knowing exactly how far you've gone from one image to the next would be a huge thing, right? Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was exactly the feedback we got. Um, so there was a person from an agency, I'm not allowed to tell you which one it is, which is hilarious. Um, but they were basically like, look, we have a problem. We're shooting very detailed um, aerial to ground mapping photos. Uh, incredibly detailed, but we're basing this on airspeed because that's the only thing we have. And it turns out that airspeed on an aircraft is incredibly um, inaccurate because if you have a slight headwind, it, the, the plane will tell you that you're going much faster. Or if you have a slight tailwind, it tells you it's going much slower. And so in order to get a full coverage, they were doing 60% overlaps. So basically as you're flying, 
you're flying quite high up, you have a pretty good telelens, uh, they're making sure that they have 60% overlap, which means that each individual bit of landscape is probably t- photographed three times. That is not a problem, but the post-processing of that to turn it into one giant photo took forever. And they were saying, well, by using GPS, if we could find a way of using GPS, we could reduce the overlap to 20%, which reduces our processing time by like 70% or whatever numbers they gave me. And we were like, well, actually, our our uh, distance lapse mode does that. We developed it with the idea being you can do a very interesting time lapse of driving through a city, which is using normal timing. But you know, if if you if traffic slows down, then the, then you know you've got a very boring time lapse. If you instead could um, use distance to trigger the camera, so say take a photo every hundred meters or so then it looks like the entire journey happens at a constant speed, no matter how fast you're driving. So imagine you're driving through like a really urban area and you're moving like a foot a second, if that, then you still you can still get this feeling like you're basically gliding through the landscape at the same speed all the way. It turned out to be a really cool effect that nobody really used. Um, you know, I've seen one or two drive lapses and they all kind of, they look okay, but it turns out taking pictures of traffic isn't that interesting. And the kind of situations where this is very useful, you're probably stuck in traffic anyway. And so the only photo you get is of that Volvo right in front of you. Um, but for um, for aircrafts that don't have that problem, you know, they were able to solve this uh, problem very differently by basically bolting a camera to the bottom of the, of the, of the plane and having a, a, a trigger trap running inside the plane using distance. And, you know, you're absolutely right. That's exactly what people were using it for. Um, other things is another niche that turned out to be huge for us is um, uh, astrophotography. So having very precise control over the shutter. So they wanted, okay, I can get my telescope to track this one particular star I want to photograph, but it's very faint. So I want a three minute and 20 second exposure exactly. And I want, for, because that's the duration I can track this celestial element using my very fancy telescope. Um, and we were able to give them that. And it turned out that it sounds like a really simple challenge, but it is not necessarily something that people are able to do that easily. Well, it, it, once you have the app infrastructure in place and somebody oh, comes sure. to you with an idea, it's like, okay, well, we already have the app. Let's add another button for uh, bulb ramping or whatever it happens to be that people yeah. are asking about. And some of that requires a certain amount of technical setup uh, when you're trying to, to get those uh, types of time lapses to work. Um, but the fact that those features can be there because somebody has an idea, the app already exists and it works. All the app is doing is triggering the camera and either leaving the shutter open for X amount of time or triggering a flash or whatever it happens to be. The actual fundamentals are very simple. It's what people decide is a useful uh, feature uh, to, yeah. to be included within that. As an early adopter, you probably remember the first, the black version of the app, um, mm-hmm. which was the first version we did. It looked beautiful, if very skeuomorphic. Um, uh but the cool thing about that was that we gave the user full flexibility. You could change any setting. You could change the shutter duration. You could change the delays before and after. You could change you could change basically everything. And it turned out it made it impossible to use because we've built we built the product for me. And I know how a camera works very well because I built cameras. <laughs> um, but it turns out that that's not the main use case. So we actually went back to the drawing board and went like, okay, how would Steve Jobs design this? You know, how, how many buttons can we take away from this and still make it useful? 
And of course, as soon as we launched version 2 of this, this was the, the first red version of the app, people went crazy. Um, the funny story, actually, the, the reason Trigger Trap color is, is that particular shade of red was for the first version of Trigger Trap, um, our, our, uh, manif- our, our, our supplier, our manufacturer, got back to us and said, hey, what color do you want the PCB to work? It's not specified. And we were like, what do you mean? What color? Is there different colors? And they were like, yeah, you can have blue, green, or red. And we're like, cool, red. I've never seen a red PCB. And then they sent us a sample. I, t- I went to a lab and got it measured what color that was. And I was like, oh, cool. That's now the official Trigger Trap color. Um, and so that's, I mean, the first version you just held up of the Trigger Trap mobile dongle is completely black. And, you know, that shows how little thought we put into what that should look like. Of course, now the Trigger Trap Red is kind of iconic for the brand. You know, when you see a red cable, mm. when I'm on a bus and the bus flies by somebody doing a time lapse, I can do a quick glance and go, oh, they have red cables. They're shooting with Trigger Trap. That's really cool. Um, well, I mean, Apple did that with the uh, the iPod and, and the headphones and everything uh, yep. m- many years ago. And, and nobody has been using red. And so you made something iconic out of that. Uh, and people have been using it all over the place for years. And we've given a couple of use cases, but um, you are also alluding to the fact that people are triggering flashes with a trigger trap mm-hmm. for high-speed photography. And you mentioned that that becomes a much much more difficult process to go through. And so your ideas had said, okay, um, you know, if, if I can't do it exactly the way that I want to with the current equipment and the current setup that we have, what would the solution be? And, and this led to your second Kickstarter campaign, correct? Yeah. So there's a couple of really good products out there, like the camera axe that lets you... Um, uh, Maurice at uh, Dreaming Robots with the camera axe. Yep. I've got one of those. Yep. Yeah, uh, it's a fantastic and, product. Yeah. But and again, and it I, falls kind of on the original trigger trap side of things in that it gives you so much rope to hang yourself with that you really need to do what you know what you're doing before that product makes sense. And so same, what we... Same thing with... Uh, sorry, what was it? Uh, the, the stack shot from Cognosys, uh, yep. w- which I have as well for some of the, the, the equipment that I use. And just the other day I was using it, so it's fresh in my mind. I had to go in and make a bunch of adjustments for the actual timing of the pulse that it was sending to the camera to trigger it properly. And those options are there, and I'm glad that they are because I needed to adjust this. But I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I, I'm I'm a geek. Like, I, I'm a propeller hat uh, camera geek, and, and I know how to work all of this stuff. But the average photographer is more concerned about their art than the technical stuff behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, so that is a challenge, of course, you have to overcome. Yeah, for sure. And I think that was kind of our idea. I mean, the Camera Axe is a, is a genuinely amazing product, and I have a lot of time for Maurice. But as I'm sure he would be the first to recognize, it is not for everyone, right? It's for, it's for proper hardcore photography geeks, um, as we are both them. But the insight I had from Trigger Trap was that this is just too complicated. It could be much simpler. And our idea was in making a simple to use high-speed photography trigger, uh, we could actually open this art up to lots more people. And our gamble was, hey, you know, as, a, as an exploring photographer, you get your first SLR camera and you maybe take some pictures of some flowers and then maybe you get into macro for a while. And after that, maybe you get into portraiture and then you do some wildlife photography and then maybe you do some, you know, you kind of go through this very predictable path of the types of photography a photographer tries out before they find their their love of photography or maybe they don't but so everybody kind of finds their their the thing that they really enjoy doing and we thought hey high-speed photography is never really on that path we want to put it on that path and in the process our thinking was hey if we make an easy enough solution that is affordable and we can put that on the photographer's journey 
then in theory, we open up uh, 15 million cells. In theory. Uh, in theory. And, well, and it, so because the nobody's done correct. it before. <laughs> and one of the challenges, of course, is because nobody's done this before, a lot of photographers are in the boat of they don't know what they don't know. Uh, yeah. If that makes any sense, because they, they're unaware that this is at their fingertips if they have this one little magic device to allow them to do this sort of stuff. They don't even know what that stuff is. And so they're not no. going to be seeking out your product specifically. And that, of course, the Kickstarter campaign has to overcome that uh, no. by by driving things on mass through all of the. Uh, photography blogging platforms and, and everything. And I've I've done uh, crowdfunding campaigns before, and I know that that's a full-time job when that's going in order to get the uh, the feedback that you're after. Uh, and, and you did meet your goals for that. Uh, they could, of course, always be better, but you had enough to bring this thing into engineering and into production. So what happened then? Yeah, so our goal for this one was, I think, 50,000 um, pounds, which was at the time about $75,000 uh, US dollars. And we raised 290,000 pounds, which is almost half a million dollars, um, which should be more than enough to bring this into production. Um, and, you know, we'd done a lot of work and a lot of research and a lot of R&D before we even got to that point, right? We had a working prototype. Uh, we had some very nice finished 3D printed uh, samples of what this would look like. Uh, we had done a lot of photography in the lab to make it work and all that kind of stuff. And it all, you know, worked-ish. Um, no, it, it really did work. But the, the last piece of the puzzle that we wanted to solve was to make it user-friendly. Because we figured, so there's two things, right? It had to be easy to use and it had to be cheap. So we were aiming for a price point, ultimately, of $99. So what we figured is that, okay, for $99 and making this easy enough to use, we can actually make this happen. And to do this, we actually wanted to trade on one of our bits of secret sauce. You mentioned that um, information is very important, and I completely agree with that. Um, but that is something that TriggerTrap has been doing since day one, right? We've, we've had uh, TriggerTrap How-To how and TriggerTrap University right from the beginning, where we have in-depth video tutorials for how to, to use the products, how to do interesting weekend projects or longer projects with the idea being um, that people who have used trigger trap to create something amazing say for example you've done a time lapse of um of little snow crystals growing then you could also if somebody comes to you and asks hey how did you do that that's amazing you can either spend the next hour of your life explaining it to them or you could link them to the tutorial we've done that does something similar and that strategy really worked i mean those videos had a lot of playtime on lots of different channels. And as a result, lots of people got exposure to it. And so what, what we figured is that if we start doing educating photographers in what high-speed photography is, then we will at the same time sell these products. Because we figured in a review, we may not stand up to a camera axe um, in terms of features and not even in terms of speed, but in terms of ease of use, we will still win. And in terms of price point, we will definitely win. And that was kind of our gamble, that we could find a way of making that making that work and, and so anyway, within we, that gamble on. i just i just want to dwell on that for a second because knowledge is is power when it comes to creating a great image and, and i've been one to give away all of my secrets for every image that i take and tell people exactly how i do it um 
and and some of the times like it, it's ridiculously complicated and difficult uh the process that i might go through but it can be described easily enough so that people can take a look at that and say okay well that gives me some ideas uh, no. it's not going to be the same thing and even if somebody did create the same thing as i did well i'm i'm on to something else now at that point you know yeah. uh, I'm, I'm more than happy to share and so once you spark that idea in people, an idea that is their own, that is inspired from your tutorials, then yeah. that's really where things start uh, to get interesting. And people will say, OK, well, now I've got my own idea. I need to make that happen. And if it costs me ninety nine dollars to do it, well, then that's a small price to pay. For sure. Yeah, for sure. And I think there is something really powerful there. And I think it's incredibly exciting when you're able to inspire people to do new stuff. If we are going to make this happen I trade on my expertise of creating good photography education, and we leverage my team's expertise in building great products. How big is your and team Or uh, at, at that time? At that time, we were nine, I think. At the peak, we were 14. Um, and so, yeah, we, we thought, okay, we can, we can do this. The problem is, of course, actually, let me get to that slightly later. Um, but yeah, so we, we started uh, kind of sketching out what this product would be. Um, and a very early working title for it was Trigger Trap Brick. The idea being that it would be like a Lego brick, right? So you take different units and plug them together, and then you add more functionality by adding more bricks. And so that was kind of the thoughts of behind the product. And we built loads of little prototypes, and we we built some really interestingly interesting products there. And so we we got all the way to the end of the prototype phase. We had a very good, extremely high speed trigger. Um, I think we were down to uh, definitely, I think, 80 microseconds for triggering, which is incredibly fast. Um, I mean, for, for really high-end solutions, they're faster. But it's, you know, that was, that was good enough for what we wanted. Well, and at and that the, price point, there's no competition. Right, absolutely. And the, and, the, um, and the user interface was clunky. It was just text, and it was ugly as hell. But for testing, you know, what we had proved was that we were able to build a product at a price point that was sensible, uh, that can do super high-speed photography. And it also automates some of this process. So it would open the camera shutter, then it senses a sound, for example, or something that flies through a, um, a laser beam, triggers a flash, closes the shutter, and then, you know, is ready for the next shot, basically. It sounds wonderful. Where can I buy this? Well, you can back our Kickstarter campaign, uh, which a lot of people did. We had almost 2,000 people backing that campaign. Um, and interestingly enough, we did some very creative marketing, and most people ended up backing at the highest level. So we basically didn't do anything. We didn't do any backer levels that weren't uh, simple. So you choose what you want, and you order that thing. And then we started giving people incentives to actually upgrade their orders to have more functionality. So the basic version, I think, was just the, the base box that we're selling for, I think, $35. Um, but you can't really do much with that other than time lapses. And at that point, you may as well not bother, right? But then each individual unit was also um, added functionality. So we had like a passive infrared sensor for doing trail cams. We had a um, laser sensor for doing high-speed photography and a very high-speed sound sensor. And the idea was we could combine several of these. So you have two laser sensors which means that with two laser sensors, if you imagine where the beam intersects, uh, if both of those triggers are broken, then you actually have positioned something in three-dimensional space. So you can focus on that point, you can put it out in a bat colony, 
And whenever photos get triggered, you know that the bat will be in focus exactly where you expect it and uh, well lit because you've set up your flashes correctly. There was no other way of doing that that we were aware of. And internally, we were calling it bat mode. Um, and it was just a really interesting use case for how we could show something new. Uh, and it was really cool. It was fantastic. So that's how we launched a Kickstarter campaign. Um, on the very same day that we launched a Kickstarter campaign, we got uh, a very angry lawyer's letter about the name of the product. Um, we originally called it, I can't tell you because I signed a piece of paper that says I can never say that name again. Um, anyway, we ended up settling that and we changed the name of the product at the very last moment to uh, Trigger Trap Ada, um, which was named after Ada Loveless and uh, my co-founder's first kid. Um, but yeah, so it, it all went really well, actually. The, the campaign went really well. We uh, raised a shit ton of money and we're super excited about actually getting into manufacturing with this. And pretty much as soon as the campaign finished... Um, now I have to think about the chronology. Did we know by the end or not? Anyway, our our um, electronics manufacturer, or the, the design company, actually, got back to us and said, hey, so we have a problem. All the stuff you want to do with the uh, user interface, we can't do based on the processors we are using here. Because we wanted it to still be Arduino compatible. Um, and we were like, well... That's a your, your prototypes were functional at that point, but it was only a text interface that they were using, right? So then yes. when you started to put some of these pieces together, it's like they, they didn't fit. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it worked and it was really good. Uh, the problem is it was really good in a way that we didn't think users would be able to use um, right. because it was really clunky to use. And because we designed it, we knew exactly how to use it. You know how it worked, right? It's, it's like if you borrow your friend's car. I like to put it this way. It's like when you borrow your friend's car and they say, yeah, the car works perfectly fine. But if you want to fill fuel, you have to push this panel and kick over there. And then the fuel cap jumps out and then you can fill fuel. For him, or, you know, I'm sure some of your prototypes had like little dip switches or something like that, or just little bits and pieces that are completely undocumented. The, the knowledge of how it all works is in, completely in your head and it makes perfect sense to you, but yeah. to nobody else in the world. Yeah, exactly. And so for, for, to, to use a specific example, so on the car example, you know, to your friend, that car perfectly works. To you, you go, this car is so broken, it's ridiculous. In terms of this, um, in terms of the uh, Trigger Trap Ada, for example, we had a we had a bug, which meant that whenever you disconnected the one of the sensors and plugged it back in again, it restarted the product. Now, we couldn't find out for the longest time why this thing would reboot every single time when you disconnected or reconnected something. So from a user point of view, to take photos, that works perfectly fine, but that is not a good user experience. And so there was a couple of little things like that, that, you know, the, the electronics guys absolutely told us that they could fix. Um, and it didn't really impact the use of it, but it made stuff a little bit less user-friendly. Well, it turns out that those little things took forever to, to figure out. So to get the, the full user interface, we needed a, a memory, a, a, a processor with more memory in it. To do that, we had to rewrite part of the code. To do that, we had to rewire part of the PCBs. Uh, to fix the problem with the restarting thing, we had to change other stuff. And that, if you think about it, that at that time, we had half a million dollars in the bank account. So when they got back to us, it's like, oh, we have to do the test to find out whether we should use processor A, B, or C. It's going to cost $2,000. We're like, eh, we've got loads of money. Another $2,000 doesn't really matter. Well, the problem is, at that point, of course, 
you can only do that so many times before you well, start and, running out of money. As we're talking about the simplest trigger trap devices, like the mobile dongles that you had created in the past, they had, what, 40-something components in it. Now, yeah. as soon as you add one component, it becomes exponentially more complicated. And, and I'm sure that this product was not just a, a 50 or 60 or 100-part device. I mean, this is... This is a, 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 like a, like a mini computer that you would see from any major manufacturer like Samsung or, um, yeah. or LG. And, and what do you do then at that point when your resources are far less, um, your, your foundation of support, your staff, your knowledge, the people that are constantly running around solving all of these problems? Well, that's you and you've never seen these problems before. Yep. Right? And, you know, we didn't know what to do. It was an extremely stressful time. Um, I mean, I didn't sleep for several months um, because we just didn't know how to cut our way through this. Uh, you know, and we, we tried to seek some advice from like professional um, uh, consumer electronics designers. And they were like, oh, cool. How much have you budgeted to develop this? And we we're like, well, we have half a million dollars. And they just laughed. And they were like, look, for, for one of the guys we, we spoke to used to work at TomTom. Uh, the, the guys who make the sat-navs and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said, you know, we wouldn't even start looking at something unless we have a million and a half of a budget al uh, allocated. And that was our entire budget, including for manufacturing. So we were just operating in a completely different space at that point because we, we wanted to create a product that was good enough that it felt like a real, a real product, right? If you pick up a Canon flash, it has weight to it. The buttons feel nice. You know, it, it has... It feels like a quality product. If you pick up a very cheap Chinese-made flash, you know that you're holding something different, even though it might look exactly the same. The movement isn't quite the same. The buttons aren't quite the same. Battery life does, sucks and all that kind of stuff. And so we had some, some demands from our um, design company that included, you know, it has to be so-and-so fast. It has to be easy to use. The battery life has to be at least nine months of, of, for time-lapse mode, that kind of stuff. And when we finally got it back from them, the battery life was abysmal. I can't remember off the top of my head how, how much it was now, but it was like a hundredth of that. And we were like, how could I'm you be so far I, off the mark? You I'm know? not allowed to swear at this podcast, so I can't tell you what I told them. Um, but we I can just put like a, a very long bleep and we'll just pretend yeah. that, uh, but let's <laughs> that you save went your, off. Let's save your poor listeners from that. And guys, pretend you've just heard a very, very long bleep. And that was me talking to my suppliers. Um, but it turned out that basically they weren't as uh, experienced in building these kind of products as we thought. So it turns out that they are very good at building uh, one of something, but that is not the same as building 10,000 of something. And that was a problem we ran into again and again and again and again. And eventually I went and saw them and I was like, guys, I'm here to pick up the final prototypes. And they're like, oh yeah, we meant to talk to you about something. And it turns out they were nowhere near where we were meant to be. And then a different part of that meeting, I said, okay, well, let's talk about the bill of materials then, because I need to start talking to the manufacturers in China to find out how much this is going to be. So they gave me the list of all the uh, individual components that needed to go into this. Now... If you imagine you want a three times markup on a product and you want to sell it for $99, that means that the bill of materials can be a maximum, an absolute maximum of $30. That makes perfect sense, right? Yeah. And, and of course, I, you know, at, at the end of the day, the, the difference in that, that's not going in your pocket. You know, that no. 
chances are most of that is going in to recoup the cost of uh, of the engineering and the development. Uh, and you had the money for that, but it only lasts so long, especially when you've got a whole staff and uh, design teams, uh, both in, I'm not sure where uh, your designers were, both in wherever they were and in China. Yeah, yeah. At this point, how much money did you have left? So... At the end of that process, we discovered that the actual bill of materials cost was three or four times higher than we expected. So now, uh, using the numbers I just used as an example, we were like told that the bill of materials would be $100, not 30 which means that the cost of the product to the end consumer is $300, not $99. And at that point, after I facepalmed so hard, I gave myself a concussion, I kind of went oh, what have we done? Because I don't think this product will sell at $300. Basically, it's good, but it's still a niche product. And for $300, you can go and buy a very nice camera axe. So I was like, oh, we have really, really screwed the pooch here because there is suddenly, there just doesn't, there isn't a space for this product at this price in this market. And so we started looking around and figuring out whether there was anything we could do to claw back the cost. At this point, we actually never had a fully functional uh, with the final UI product. Then we finally got that final version through, and that meant, cool, we have the final version of the software, we have the final bill of materials, let's see if we can make this happen. And it turned out that we didn't even have enough money left to do a production run. Uh, So we went and talked to a couple of investors to see, hey, guys, we have this product ready, Uh, but of course they did their own analysis, and they were like, well, at $300, we don't think this thing is going to sell. We're like, well, what if we do $250? We said, we will not make as much money, but what do you guys think? And they're like, mm, you guys were right. At $99, maybe at $149, this would have worked. At $250 or $300, we don't think there is a space in the market for this. Which, you know, is, is kind of a, a weird one because there will be people who are willing to pay $300 for this. The problem there, there, is, there, there would be people willing to pay five hundred dollars for it. Uh, absolutely, but, but the the number of of people that are willing to shell out that amount of money is not sustainable for a company. Uh, exactly, and and so then at that point, it's the writing is on the wall, and you have to say to yourself, well, we we can't deliver, but we've already spent everybody's money. Yeah, so we had about twenty percent of the money left. I think about twenty one percent in the end, and so then we had a uh, then we had a choice. We could either try to deliver this, whatever the cost. And it was extremely likely. I mean, we talked to some accountants, we did some financial modeling. It's extremely likely that company would go bankrupt at that point. And if we only had one product, right? If we only had a single product in our line, which was that one product that didn't get delivered, I would have done that. I would have gone like, okay, you know what? Let's go for broke. Let's, let's try everything we can. And if we go bankrupt in the process, then so be it. That's okay. But at the time, we had hundreds of thousands of users for our mobile product. And we were facing a situation where if we run ourselves ragged trying to deliver this one product for the 2,000 people who ordered one, and instead we fail to deliver that, but we also fail the 100,000 people out there who um, are already using our other product, that would be worse. And so I did everything I could to try and avoid that. But in the end... The only sensible thing we could do was to cancel the project, which, you know, we did Angered with... Angered many, I'm sure. It did anger many. Um, absolutely no doubt about that. Um, but in the end, 
I think people understood. And this is where kind of, if you talk to the people who got angry about this, they will have one story and I will have another. My point of view is, look, Kickstarter is there for people to do, to take a big risk, to take a big chance and to try something, right? You punt the ball as hard as you can and hopefully it works out. Many times it does work out. Sometimes it doesn't. If it doesn't work out, then as a Kickstarter backer, you know, you were part to try and make the dream come alive. And if that didn't work, then that didn't work, basically. Um, and there were a few people who were very angry with us who said, well, you have to give us a full refund. And I was like, well, what's in it for us? So I didn't tell them that. But in my mind, it's like, look, if we are using Kickstarter and we fail and we have to give everybody's money back, there is no reason to do a Kickstarter. At that point, it's much better to go take a bank loan, do all the development in secret, and then launch your product and then get the benefits or not lose a product if it fails and not get any benefits. Um, and so and, I think and a lot of people don't realize that, I mean, Kickstarter is not a pre-order uh, for an item that will exist and you have buyer protections and everything along the way. You have to trust that everything will go according to plan once you give them their money because they've got a plan. You know, you with yeah. Trigger Trap, you've got the plan. And if that plan does not you know, come together the way that you hope, well, then a yeah. new plan has to be formed. And sometimes the whole thing needs to be torn up and you walk away yeah. from it. Um, so long, I think that so long as people realize the entire story and understand that they supported it, you got to a point as far along as you possibly could putting your blood, sweat and tears into that project and then realize that it just couldn't be, as opposed to saying, okay, well, I'm just going to go take this half a million dollars and uh, buy some very expensive scotch and, <laughs> see you in the uh, and a new car and uh, <laughs> see you in the Bahamas. You know, I, I understand where people can can see, okay, this is, this is a project that failed, um, but yeah. it's not one that failed without an insurmountable amount of effort from you and your engineers and everybody else. And so I, I'm glad that we were able to talk about at least that part of the story. Um, yeah. So then what happened? I mean, like I find that really difficult to talk about, not because I don't want to share, but because, I mean, the mind space I was in back then was, was I was not in a good place um, because we've let so many people down, right? And what I realized and what not necessarily all of my staff realized is that there are, there's a very real chance that this will be the end of the company. And we're sitting here now having this conversation because it turns out it was the end of the company. So, so we, but between the end of this, uh, this sort of Kickstarter saga that you realized, mm -hmm. okay, this product's not going to happen, to mm -hmm. an announcement that you had made uh, a week or so ago that uh, Trigger Trap is no more. Yep. That, that time frame, uh, let's, let's kind of tell the end of the story here and figure sure. out uh, where things went after the, the failed Kickstarter for the Trigger Trap ADA and uh, what the company did about it and why at the end you just basically had to say, okay, you know what, let's just lock the doors on this one. Yeah. So at the end of it, we, did, uh, we, we t took all the expenses we had and put them in a giant pile and saw that we had about 20% left of, of the money, or 20% left in the accounts. We didn't have 20% of the money left because we still had, you know, we, we hired some uh, engineers and that kind of stuff that were partially used for other projects. And so we were like, well, what are we going to do? So we decided to still pay together, to pay back all the money that we could show we hadn't spent on manufacturing Trigger Trap ADA. 
which meant that we actually ended up paying out more money out of our bank account than we had, if that makes sense. Yeah. So um, I personally put some money in, uh, my wife put some money in, we had a couple of other people, some of my friends, some of my family, I had about 10 people who came in and I basically talked to them and said, look, this is not looking good. I think, I think this is the end of the company. And they were like, well, do you still have faith in it? I was like, yeah, I do. So they were willing to put together, there was about $100,000 or so that was invested into the company at that point and that saved it. Most of that money went out again, um, you know, to, to repay the Kickstarter backers. Um, I didn't want to make a big point of that at the time because it doesn't matter, you know, from their point of view, it doesn't matter where the money comes from as long as they get some of their money back. Um, but that was a really, really difficult time. And I was worried about my staff. I was worried about the company. I was worried about what this would do to my friends and family because I've taken their money and, you know, it, it was just really, really hard. Um, right up, when we did that cancellation, we had about 14 staff left. Um, so we had four uh, iOS and Android engineers. We had some uh, marketing staff. We had uh, product management staff, the product staff. We had some operational staff who were working on putting together the, the making sure stuff is in the warehouses, that kind of stuff. And, you know, that, that was that. That was everybody. And at the time, we were in an uh, accelerator program, like a startup accelerator program. Um, and we went through the budgets very, very carefully with, with them. And they were like, well, it's not looking good here. So we started making redundancies, which was incredibly hard. Um, I don't know if you use that word in the US, but basically we had to fire some people. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that's the first time in my life I'd have to do that. And that was a... Uh, in retrospect, we waited too long. We tried for too long to save their jobs before we let them go, uh, which put us at extreme peril you know there was times where you know i stopped taking a wage back then and i haven't seen a single penny from from the company since uh but i was still working on it full time uh, because i was like look i will not take a single dollar until my staff is all paid and until you times- kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel and right. uh and so i i completely understand where you're coming from from that perspective because if you are if you're taking money that money is that money doesn't exist for the company to give you. And you are trying so hard to keep this company afloat that, um, that that puts you between a rock and a hard place because you still need a roof over your head as well. Yeah. So we waited too long to make redundancies, but we eventually did. And then realized that was too little too late. We have to make more redundancies. So we let more people go. And at that point, we basically didn't have a um, development team anymore, which is kind of... That is a death sentence for a company, because if you're not doing R and D and you're not developing your products, then you know eventually you are stale and sales will start going down. So we decided to we had two choices: either keep the marketing team and uh, let the engineers go, or let the engineers go and or sorry, the other way around. Um, and we ended up choosing to keep the marketing team for the reason that we figured that increased marketing and and helping to kind of talk to our customers, good customer support will help more sales to happen. And that's the fastest way for us to try and get back uh, and start making some money again. And that was the right choice. If we hadn't, if we kept the engineers, but let the marketing team go, we would have gone bankrupt a long time ago. But of course, that means that you're now in a trajectory where you're selling a product that is no longer quite current. You have to kind of pull yourself out of this sort of black hole of of 
being stale, trying to sell this product to make enough money to afford the wages of everybody in the company, put more money in in the bank to then eventually get a engineering team again. And exactly. uh, that's, I mean, that's wishful thinking. Um, no. And it might have happened, but it's it's really impossible, uh, as you've seen, uh, at least in this scenario, to uh, to have that play out in your favor. Yeah. So we always had this um, this this layer of optimism where we thought, okay, we can trade out of this. We can we can get ourselves back on our feet, start investing in R and D again. And you know, there was no shortage of ideas. We have. 10 or 15 products that were at various stages of R&D and various stages of prototyping and research that we could have totally brought to market and that would have been pretty good sellers. But we were pretty badly burned by this Kickstarter project and knowing all the risks meant that, you know, in every budget, we added an extra 50% of, of contingency and suddenly the product just doesn't make sense anymore. And so we're like, okay, we can take a risk and try and launch this thing or we can just play it safe and see if we have more money later. And so, little by little, you know, the the the, the sales started dwindling, and um, we just kind of had to let more people go. And for the last year or so, there's only been one staff member left. Um, he was our first hire as well, actually, uh, and he's now the managing director of the company. Um, and meanwhile, that's just kind of how it ended. Really, it's it's incredibly sad. And Not it's with a bang, sad. but with a whimper, unfortunately. Right, right. And so we, when we finally announced this, right, we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails um, and messages on Twitter, Facebook, and all that kind of stuff of loyal customers who we haven't heard about, heard from for a while, who were just really sad. They were like, oh, it's such a good product. It's, it's so exciting to work with. You have such good customer service. So sad to have this happen. Um, I mean, of course, there was a few people who uh, were very eager to dance on our grave as well, mostly Kickstarter backers. Um, but, you know, I think that the, the vast majority of people were super excited and super eager to tell us how sad they were that we, that we brought this to an end. And of course, that gave me thought, uh, gave me pause again. I was like, is there any way we can save this? Is there any way we can keep going and just you know, let people have, have the continued support from us and keep the products going? But no matter how you look at those spreadsheets, it's a curve that goes slightly down and to the right. And I did eventually manage to pay off all my friends. You know, little by little, we, we managed to claw ourselves out of that and I was able to pay back my friends. So now the only creditors are um, one early investor and my wife and I. But we were like, okay, are we ever going to get this money back? And the answer was no. And I was like, well, we can't do R&D. So the company is kind of... It's not a question of if, but it's a question of when it eventually dies. And we can't pay back to creditors. And eventually you're like, well, this doesn't, this doesn't feel like a company that makes sense anymore. Not on paper um, and not in reality. And, you know, we, we looked at this as many possible ways as we could, but eventually just decided, you know, this, this just isn't happening. And and that's I mean the end I guess we we put uh, yeah. uh, we, we we put the final words to it now that that is not to say that it's the end of all the products that people already own I mean my original uh, Trigger Trap Mobile <laughs> will still work with the app on my phone and I can go and make magic with that anybody with a current product yeah. um, that it's not like all of a sudden it no longer functions now of course if 
iOS or Android uh, does some software update that then breaks the app, then we're kind of up the creek without the paddle. But um, for the time being, at the very least, we still have something of the Trigger Trap uh, legacy that we can enjoy, that we can look back and say, you know, you guys did you did good. Um, And I want to thank you for for having this conversation. Um, But at the same time, where do you go from here? I mean, Trigger Trap has been your life for, for quite a while. I know you do other things. It, yeah. like, does it just completely disappear? Is it like you've got an idea that maybe some larger company is going to buy the design and the brand and roll that into some other project? Um, is, is there anything outside of what you're doing with the company that will breathe it some potential life? So this is a conversation we've had ongoing, um, right? We're talking to a couple of people who might be interested in buying the brand. We're talking to one or two companies who are interested in buying the products and just continuing operations as normal. Um, and I don't know, is the, is the honest answer. Um, the, the conversations, of course, start very hot and then cool down a little bit. Um, I don't have very high hopes of Trigger Trap continuing. Um, what you do say, though, is, is true. I mean, the, the apps will continue working. I will find a way of keeping them on the App Store. And if there is an iOS update that breaks them, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean the end either. It is possible that I go and talk to a, a friend of mine who is a developer who, who knows iOS really well, who knows Android re- re- very well, and says, okay, I can fix this, for, fix this for 500 bucks. I might just reach into my own pocket and pay the 500 bucks. If they say, hey, I can fix this for $5,000, I'll be like, ah, okay, that's... that's it. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to make any more money off this. Um, I still feel a massive loyalty to, to the customers and a lot of the friends I've made in the process, right? And the number one thing that's kept us going for this long is the Flickr group. The amount of amazing photography that's turned up in that group, it's just astonishing. You know, there's thousands and thousands of photos that are way better than anything I've ever taken, but that I still have a tiny little stake in being the part of creation, uh, of creating. And I think that is incredibly humbling. And it's, it's, been, it's been such a fantastic journey. And it's just, I'm very, very sad right now that this is coming to an end. Um, well, I mean, uh, if you cared time, about we... it, you should be, right? It, it shows yeah. how much that you... <laughs> yeah. it, it shows how much you do care. Uh, and a lot of people don't see that when they see a press release. You know, it, it just, it, the person doesn't come through. And, and to have the story, I, I think that it's wonderful for all of us. But what, what's next for you? So, I mean, I've... Um, there's been a couple of things that has happened, right? So my... If we had some personal issues. Uh, my mother-in-law uh, had a stroke a few years ago, and we've been flying from the... We were living in the UK at the time, flying out to the US a lot to help look after her, to make sure she's okay. Um, and we discovered that she actually needs more regular care. So we ended up moving to California um, to help look after her. And that was the time when I really handed over control of Trigger Trap to Matt uh, fully. Because I was like, look, there's this eight-hour time difference. I can't... I can't be fully involved from here. Um, I'm going to leave it to you to run this and to make it shine. Um, and he did a fantastic job with the tools he was given and with the restraints he was given. But the problem is, you know, those restraints were pretty massive. Um, so meanwhile, I've been involved in a couple of other companies. I was a temporary CEO for a marketing company that did like digital signage. I've just started a new company myself that is trying to do some very interesting um, things in the space of encouraging people to talk about death with their families. So it's a completely different, <laughs> completely different com- uh, company, completely outside the, the photographic space. 
So I won't be bored. Um, that's for sure. Uh, you you write as well. You write for TechCrunch, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I've I've done a few more books. I'm writing for TechCrunch, which is a big uh, startup uh, website out there that's that's doing a lot of stuff about uh, you know raising money and kind of how to run a startup that kind of stuff. Um, there's also a pretty good chance that I'm going to write up the the rise and fall of Trigger Trap at some point. I'm not sure if that's going to be on on TechCrunch or if I put it on a Medium site or something. But it's uh, it's something I'm quite passionate about, kind of keeping. Even though this flamed out, I want to help people who run hardware startups to avoid that in the future. And I think we've learned some very important lessons, some of them ridiculously obvious and some of them maybe a little bit more uh, subtle. If if you can take what you knew or what what you've learned through this entire process and save other people from making mistakes that uh, that destroy their dreams, yeah, for sure. I I mean that 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 becomes sort of a a a second life for 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 Trigger Trap and everything that you've done through it. As you say, it flamed out, but it doesn't mean that it can't help other people still. Yeah, I mean, um, and as I mentioned, I do a fair bit of uh, mentoring and stuff uh, these days, and this is a lot of that. You know, all the stuff I've learned from. From going through a couple of accelerators and uh, being part of Trigger Trap and, and the challenges we found, but also a lot of the solutions we found. I mean, this company could have failed five or six times before this, and we've dodged so many bullets through the years. Um, and I'm proud of that. You know, it's not something we've spoken about fully because, you know, it's not always been relevant to people. But we've dodged a hailstorm of bullets. And I'm proud of that. You know, the, the, the fact that the company's been running for this long is is a testament to how persistent t- the team has been and how patient our customers have been, really. Um, well, and, and, and let, let's celebrate we what that, people that's will, awesome. yeah, let's celebrate with, uh, what people will make with Trigger Trap tomorrow and the day after. I mean, yeah. your legacy continues to live on. So, um, Hayat, th- thank you so much for, for being here on this, uh, this episode of Inside the Lens. I, thank I think you that, so much for having me. I, I think that a lot of people, if they've listened to this conversation, uh, will... They might have questions for you. They might just want to send you a note in, in some way, shape, or form. So where, where can people find you? So my Trigger Trap email still works. It's uh, h at tri dot gg. Um, so yeah, I, I welcome any comments and, and cheering me on. And, you know, the odd swear word here and there I'll also take gladly. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Uh, and, and we'll be in touch again. You know, if I get feedback, I'll forward it on to you. Uh, awesome. And, uh, and I wish you all the best in your future endeavors. Uh, and let's make the world a better place for people like you as inventors and entrepreneurs moving forward. Sounds awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Now, that conversation took many unexpected turns, and I'm glad the discussion was as open as it was. I'll personally continue to be a fan of Trigger Trap, uh, and it was great to see a view inside the challenges that photography upstarts face. So thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Lens. Inside the Lens.